Well, last week, as Kevin told you, we started the New Life in Christ series, and, and uh, if you did not get a chance to hear that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, Kevin did a phenomenal job of talking about uh, uh, opening up and admitting our brokenness and the need for that, and it is a foundational piece to where we are as a church, where we want to be, and where we are as believers. And so if you're, if you're a guest of ours and you want to know kind of the heartbeat of the church, I'd encourage you to go listen to that one. Um, as well. So we're going to jump off of that from today and move forward. Frequently, we tend to think of admitting our brokenness as, as the end-all be-all. If I, if I finally get to a place where I admit I'm broken, then I feel some measure of relief, and then I can move forward. But the reality is that's the beginning point. That's not the whole process. And so as we look forward this morning to the next building block, the next piece of this process, I'd encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to begin in verse 8. I want to give you a little bit of background um, of what's happening here. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth and, it, and uh, encouraging them in several different arenas. And at the beginning of chapter 7, there's an exchange where Paul talks about he, he's been in Macedonia. Um, it was very, it's been very discouraging, very hard, very difficult for him. And then Titus comes along, and Titus is great encouragement to him. But a part of the reason why Titus is so encouraging is because he has word from the Corinthian church back to Paul. And what Paul had done previously, Paul had written um, a letter to the church, and he had admonished them throughout it. And he, had, and he had drawn out the sin, he had pointed it out to them, and told them areas that they needed to, to bring to light and to deal with. And then Paul had not heard back from that letter until he sees Titus. And Titus brings encouragement that they responded to that letter appropriately and rightly. And so we're going to pick up in verse 8, and he's, Paul's going to talk about that letter, and that's the letter he's referring to. So let's begin. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proven yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. So let's go back. Verses eight and nine. So Paul's talking about this letter that he's written. And for a little bit, you know, there was that twinge of, of, of did I do the right thing? Did I say it right? You know, have you ever called someone out and, and gone, was that right? Was that appropriate? Did I use the right language? Should I have done it that way? And yet Paul here says that though he may have had a little regret, he does not now regret it because he sees that now he's happy, not because you were made sorry, verse 9, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Here's the reality. It wasn't about avoiding pain. Paul called them out and drew into the light so that they would have to admit their brokenness so that it could be dealt with and walked through. 
But it wasn't just so they could feel sorry. See, the goal was not just to make them feel bad. Sometimes in our brokenness, we confess it, we admit it, and then we just feel sorry and just stay in that place. This sorrow led somewhere. Where does it say it led? But your sorry, sorrow led to repentance. Right? It led to a direction where there could be light, where there could be truth, right? Repentance, this idea of repentance, it's a, it's a church word that if you've been around church for a long time, you've heard it, or if you haven't been around church, you equate it to some word you don't understand. It literally means to turn away from or to reorient every part of our life in a new direction. So we're running one direction and we reorient our lives in another direction. You see how this is different than just admitting our brokenness, right? This is, this is changing our direction. It's not just saying I'm broken. And frequently, we'll, we'll talk about it throughout, but frequently, we stop at admitting our brokenness. And this is a changing, a moving, a heading another direction. So if you were here Wednesday night, you heard my wife, Michelle, share part of her story. And, and as a part of it, she talked about our one-year-old daughter who's been learning to walk. And that's been a conversation around our house for weeks about the pictures the Lord is showing us about our lives and her learning to walk. So here's, here's a general picture of how this looks, the difference between the two. Um, our little one-year-old, she can be walking down the hallway, heading one direction, and then all of a sudden the herd of the other three kids and the dog start coming at her from the other direction. She sees a problem. There's something heading right at her, and it is not good. She knows she's experienced getting knocked down multiple times. What does she do? She turns around and heads the other direction as fast as her little legs will carry her, which is not fast. Okay, there's, there's this picture. She could just go, problem, and stop. What happens if she just stops? She gets run over. She turns around and begins to head the other direction. So it's not a perfect picture, but here's this image of coming, being faced with our brokenness, running and seeing it right in front of us, going, now I see it, now I admit it, now I know it's here, and I'm going to reorient my whole life in another direction, in a better direction. This is what repentance is. So not only did they recognize the brokenness, they began to head in another direction. But look at how this plays out. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So there, there, there's a sorrow that God intended. God was using the sorrow from their brokenness to point them in the direction the Lord wanted them to go. Right? They could have taken their sorrow a lot of different ways. They could have said, well, Paul, you don't really know us, or Paul, you don't really understand the circumstances. And they could have run a lot of different directions with it, but instead, they used it to reorient their lives toward Christ and allow him to work the sorrow that God intended so that it would draw them toward the Lord. So then look in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So interesting, there's two different kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Well, if you read that, that verse right there, we'd all go, I want godly sorrow. I want what leads, what brings about repentance that leads to salvation with no regret, not the worldly sorrow that leads to death. So what's the difference in those two? How does that play out? What does that look like? Right? Worldly sorrow at its base is self-preservation and seeking to avoid consequences. 
Worldly sorrow is all about the consequences I'm experiencing and the pain that they bring. I can feel sorry for what I'm feeling because of the consequences. Godly sorrow is focused primarily on our rebellion against God. It says that in my actions, what I have done, it is turning me away from the Lord and I have rebelled against him. Godly sorrow is humble, like an like a undeserved servant, a humble servant coming, saying, here I am. I will accept consequences. I'm not going to justify. I'm going to take responsibility because of the brokenness that's in my life because I have rebelled against you. Worldly sorrow is prideful. It's about self-preservation. How can I take the consequences that I have to take but avoid everything else, right? It's, it, it will, worldly sorrow will blame. It will point to others. It will justify. It will seek to minimize and avoid consequences. So when we find ourselves sorry about what we have done, about where our sin is leading us, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we experiencing godly sorrow that brings about repentance? Because if our sorrow is not leading us somewhere or not leading us toward Christ, it is definitely leading us toward ourself. And how do we protect and preserve? Here's, here's what that looks like. Worldly sorrow says, I want to fix my circumstances without having to hand over my desires or direction to the Lord. Right? It says, I just want this fixed. God, you fix it. I'm coming to you, fix it. I don't really want my heart to change directions. I just want the circumstances changed. Worldly sorrow says, I want to regain control. You ever felt out of control in your life? Where you, you feel like there's nothing left to grab a hold of? Say, God, I need, to, I need your help regaining control. So what we do is we say, if you'll take over for a little while, get me back on track, then I'll take the wheel again and we'll be in good shape. Worldly sorrow says, I need to regain control. Godly sorrow says, I need to surrender every amount of control of my life to the Lord and let him lead all the time. And so in my brokenness, I come to him to surrender all of that. Worldly sorrow says, I want to take my shame and my guilt and I want those to go away, but not at the cost of God asking me to change the way that I live, so to live righteously. See, there's the, the statement, God will take us right where we are, and that's the beauty of the gospel, but he has no intentions of leaving us there. Worldly sorrow says, I want to stay there just without the consequences of staying there. Godly sorrow says, I have rebelled against God, and I need him to move me from the place where I am, reorient my life toward him, and move in a new direction. Notice how it talks about leading to salvation. Right, this idea of leading to salvation. He's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to the church at Corinth. So as he's describing this, this is the process that happened for every person who believed and trusted in Christ. There's no way for us to be right with the Lord unless we have this godly sorrow that recognizes our sin, recognizes our rebellion against God, then in humility, we are left at a place of saying, I need Jesus. I need Jesus to reorient my life, to turn me away from the things that I pursue, that I follow, that I long for, and to move 
in the direction of the Lord. And so as this godly sorrow produces repentance, this godly, real, genuine sorrow about our sin that leads us to reorienting our life toward Christ, salvation springs up as we trust and believe in Jesus Christ with no regret. So here's the, here's the picture. For, for when we trust Christ, absolutely, this is a, the part of the process. This is the key. It is admitting, it is turning away from, it is trusting and surrendering to Christ that he has done everything that I need him to do that I could never do and chasing hard after him. But believers, for, for those of us who know Christ and walk with Christ, there is still this pattern that ought to be true in our lives, this admitting of our brokenness, this repenting. It's not for salvation. Salvation has been secured in Christ. Now, if we have never fully and truly repented or turned away from our sin, that may be a question that needs to be raised of have I truly trusted Christ? But for the believer who has admitted our brokenness, trusted in Christ, and we go about living our lives, guess what? Guess what's going to happen? More sin is going to be peeled back. The layers are going to come out. And we continue in that admission and repentance, that turning away and running back toward Christ. It's not for salvation. It's for experiencing the new life in Christ the way we were intended to experience it. So here's what happens most frequently with us as believers. It's like a submarine. I don't know if you've ever been on a sub or seen a sub. Um, they have, they're built so that if one section of the, of the submarine starts to leak, they can seal it off. They can close that door, seal it up. And that compartment um, doesn't flood the whole ship, the whole sub. Right? So here's what we tend to do. We tend to go, I've got brokenness. I don't really, it hurts too much. I don't really want to turn away from it, but I want to stop the consequences. So maybe what I'll just do is I'll change, do some behavior modification to hope that it stops. And instead of dealing with the heart behind it, I'll just change the way and I'll seal that part of my life off and let it flood and just not deal with it anymore. And what the subs do is they have to then surface and then try to limp along back to port. What we end up living like is a bunch of broken subs with flooded compartments acting like we're completely fine. Instead of coming, running to the Lord and going, I need you to open this compartment. I need to admit this to you. I need you to do your work of healing the hole that's in the, in the hole of my life so that then I can live in the newness and the new life that you have given in the way that you intended it. See, instead of sealing up those areas, godly sorrow says we bring them to the Lord. We allow him to turn us away from it and move us in the direction he's called us to. Now, interesting that that verse at the end says, leads to salvation with no regret. I don't know about you, but when, when, when I look at my life and I look at the sin and the brokenness that's there, there I, I hate the sin that I've seen. bothers me. But how in the world do you get to with no regret? The only way that godly sorrow leads to repentance is through the eyes of the gospel. That when we look at our sin and we know the seriousness of it and we see we begin to run toward the Lord as we've turned away from it, what happens is we, we go, Lord, I'm running to you. And he says, I know, I'm here. And guess what? My son has paid for every bit of that. So every time I see my sin, I am more greatly reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ that paid for that sin. 
So when the Lord opens the door and peels back another layer of my life and says, here's sin that, that is here. Here's, here's more sin you didn't even know was there. And I begin to run to the Lord and I, and I start to get buried in shame and guilt. What he says is, your sin is major, but my son's gift is bigger. You trust his gift and you run to him. So that the only way we live without regret and being buried under the shame of our sin before the Lord is because of the love of Jesus Christ. The gospel is greater. And we get to live in that truth. And the worldly sorrow leads to death while godly sorrow brings about repentance that draws us toward the Lord. I want to share with you a little bit about my own life and my own story. I grew up in a, in a home where my parents loved Jesus. I had two older sisters, and uh, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents lived in our home the same way they lived outside of our home. I was able to be raised in a church that, of people that loved the Lord and was able to be discipled by my parents, by people in the church, was given great opportunity to love and know and pursue the Lord. Came to know Christ at a young age. Was incredibly blessed by what the Lord had put in front of me. My parents never put pressure on me. They just wanted me to pursue the Lord, whatever that looked like. But I began to hear other people around say, God's got big things for you. You're going to do awesome works for the Lord. They were trying to be encouraging, and they were. But I began to hear these things, and I began to feel pressure, and began to wonder, and I began to look at Scripture in Luke that talked about to whom much is given, much is required, and I began to look up and go, I have been given way too much. How in the world am I ever going to live up to what I've been given? Because see, for me, part of my wrestling is with people-pleasing and perfectionism. And I, I want those, I want people, I want you to look at me and say, good job. And so as a, as a being raised as a teenager, what I wanted then was, I've got to meet these standards that people are expecting of me. I've got to do great things because the perfectionist says, I can't afford to fail, this is too big. And so I began to try to, pursue the things that would allow me to be successful in the eyes of other believers. That's, what, that's the irony. It wasn't people pleasing the world, it's people pleasing believers that I began to seek to find approval in. So that in late high school, when temptation and hidden sin began to take root in my life and the lust of my heart, I didn't want to take it to anybody. Because my people pleasing then said, you're not allowed to fail. Don't let them see you fail. And the shame of going, I understand why people who have harder stories, who have gone through great circumstances, why they struggle with sin, but I'm not supposed to do this. I have nowhere else to look except for the own evil in my own heart. And the shame began to bury me. So I did what all I knew to do. Like the submarine, I tried to seal off that part of my life. 
continue living exactly the way that I had been, begging God in the quiet moments to help me move away from it, and longing to be free and live the fullness of the new life that I had in Christ. And yet in the midst of that, I was unwilling to let other people in because of that people-pleasing, because of that fear of man. My fear of man was greater than my trust in God. And that frequently happens with our sin. It wasn't until I got to college my freshman year and really began to see the Lord began working in my life and my heart was moving away from worldly sorrow, right? That worldly sorrow that said, preserve, protect, keep this image, don't allow anybody to see and begin to move to godly sorrow. I'm in rebellion of God and whatever needs to happen needs to happen so that I can be clearly walking with the Lord regardless of what anybody says. So what the Lord opened the door too early, my freshman year at Texas A&M was a couple of guys who I could walk with, who I could confess with, who then were able to help me see what repentance really looked like in my life. See, we get scared. We go, I'm gonna, God and I are gonna fix this in the quiet places of my heart so that nobody else has to be brought in. You know what God showed me in that moment as I tried to wrestle with that alone? It, he, he can forgive, he can change, he can do all of it. But what he was revealing to me was we need to deal with the heart, not just what you're wrestling through in the action. Right, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon has, has a, a saying that, where he talked about um, dealing with the evil act and not dealing with the evil heart is like men pumping water out of a leaky vessel and not dealing with the hole. It is about our heart. And what my heart was more concerned about preservation than it was about running to the Lord, even though I thought it was about running to the Lord. And the Lord revealed out of that that my fear of letting anybody else in was keeping me from really reorienting my life toward Christ. So as I let a couple guys in, we began to walk forward. The Lord began to deal with some of the people pleasing and the other elements that were at the heart of everything in my life. And I began to allow the Lord to open that compartment of my life, seal up that hole and allow me to live in the newness of the life that he had called me to in Christ. You see, years later, I still have sin that comes, right? It looks different. But the Lord still opens my eyes and, and there's a pattern that we are called to in our lives that says we admit our, our brokenness. We turn away from it and then we run toward Christ. And this is a pattern that ought to be consistent in all of our lives, admitting our brokenness, confessing before the Lord, turning away from it, reorienting our lives toward Christ and running toward him. Because you see, when our daughter turns and runs, sometimes what she does is she sees them coming, she turns and she just starts running whatever direction she can go to try to get away. I've seen her run into the wall. I've seen her run into a couch. I've seen her do a circle and turn around and end up going back the same direction she came from and didn't even realize that's what she did. 
to, and we get so focused on, I just need to get away. I'm gonna confess and I'm just gonna get away. My job is to get away from the sin. Just get away from it. That's not a, that's not a bad beginning point, but it is a beginning point. See, when we say, I'm gonna put up all these parameters to block against my sin, those aren't bad. An alcoholic shouldn't spend time in the bar. But it's not the end. See, when our daughter gets away faster and most clearly, it's when she turns around and sees Michelle or I and makes a beeline for us and says, I know right where I'm running because they're safe. You know what happens in our lives? When we, when we admit our brokenness, when we repent, we turn around, we reorient our lives in a new direction and that new direction is toward our Father and we run straight toward Him. He is waiting there to receive us. You know what I've found in my own sin? God's not waiting to judge or to beat me over the head with it. He's waiting with open arms to say, you are my son and I love you. Because see, when our daughter begins to run toward us, her, her mind is moving faster than her little legs can go and so frequently she falls in that process of trying to get to us. As her dad, you know what I don't do? I don't look at her and go, well, you messed that up. Couldn't you get here a little faster? You fell again, come on. I'm with open arms. It's the greatest encourager going, you are running towards your father and I am right here. As you have turned away, you've reoriented toward me, I'm right here. And every once in a while she falls down so hard that she just begins to cry. And she can't take any more steps. You know what I do as a dad? I go pick her up. And I'm right there to run to her. You know what our Heavenly Father does when we are so broken as we have turned to reorient our life towards Him? And sometimes we fall so hard we just can't move. He is there to pick us up and say, I love you you. It doesn't minimize our sin. Our sin is great and it is an affront to God. What it does is it maximizes the gospel and what God has done through his son, that it is greater. So as he scoops us up, we have the opportunity to not walk in shame. Because you see in this passage right here, the rest of it, it doesn't talk about them walking in shame. It talks about how as they reoriented their life back to Christ, it was a great encouragement. It encouraged Paul. It encouraged Titus. They're now encouraging other people. They're reorienting their life to Christ. Led to great encouragement of their encouragement in walking with the Lord and encouragement to other believers and other people. As we walk this journey together, guess what? Reorienting our life to Christ is messy. It's hard. And other people don't always respond the way you want them to. But it is always worth it to reorient our lives to Christ. You see, the, the image of the Lord being available to us with open arms, we see that very clearly in Scripture in Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells a story, really, of two brothers. One brother who 
comes to his father and says, I want all of my inheritance right now. Basically says, I wish you were dead so that I could have my inheritance and do what I want. The father says, here's your inheritance. The son takes it, goes off, squanders every bit of it, and then ends up in great poverty and, and working with pigs and realizing the pigs are eating better than he does and that his father's servants eat better than he is in that moment. And so he says, I will go back to my father, not as a son, but to hopefully be one of his servants. See that godly sorrow, that repentance, that heart of it's not about self, it's about humility, and he's not coming in arrogance and pride to justify. Well, Dad, if you only knew this guy over here who was influencing me at that time, no, he is completely taking responsibility and surrendering to his father going, I don't deserve to be your son. I just want to be a servant here. He turns away around, reorients his life toward home, and heads toward his father. When he gets home, I'm sure he has his speech prepared, ready of what he's going to tell his father as he already shared. And instead, his father sees him from a ways off and comes running to him and embraces his son who's home. Son says, Dad, I, I don't deserve it. Father says, no, you are my son. You have come home. You have reoriented your life back toward me and toward home. I'm here with open arms. I give you a ring to identify you as my son, and we're going to celebrate the day that my son came home. For those of you who feel like your shame, your guilt, your sin is too much for God, this son ought to give great hope that there is nothing outside the bounds or the reach of God. There's nothing you have done that will carry you too far from the hand of the Lord or the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can reorient your life and come home. But there's a second brother who stayed at home, did what he was supposed to do, came out from the fields, back to the house, and sees that there's a party going on, asks what happened. And they tell him, your brother's come home. And there's a celebration for his return. And that brother said, I'm not going in there. In his anger, he could not go in. So what does the father do? The father comes to him and says, won't you come in? Your brother's come home. And the older brother says, no, I have been here. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And yet you've never thrown me a party like that. And the story doesn't tell us what the older son does, what the older brother does. It doesn't tell us if he reorients his life and begins to focus on the father and move into the party to celebrate. See, but what the story does reiterate to us is there are those who have wandered so far off that it is visible to everybody and it makes clear sense that there is rebellion. There are those of us that I would say is mostly my story. I identify mostly with the older brother that I have done the right things, I stayed in the right places, I did everything that was expected of me, but the rebellion of my heart was still there. And I need to be reoriented toward Christ. There are plenty of us in this room who that's your story. I've stayed home, I've done what I'm supposed to, but that doesn't mean there is not need for our admitting our brokenness and our reorienting our life in any area toward Christ. If we have godly sorrow, what we are asking of the Lord is, show me, 
where in this great big sub where there are leaks beginning to happen so I don't have to seal off entire compartments, if I get in the pattern of asking the Lord to show my brokenness, allowing me to reorient my life through his strength toward him, and I'm chasing hard after him, guess what happens? We catch them when they're small leaks before they become giant floods. And it becomes a pattern of our lives of reorienting toward Christ and finding that through the lenses of the gospel, this is not shame-filled, but it is gospel-centered with joy and no regret. Paul ended this section on talking about how Titus responded to them. And his affection for you, verse 15, is all the greater when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Not because they were sorry, but because their lives had been reoriented toward Christ. And away from their sin. That's, it's amazing as we reorient toward Christ. That is the greatest part of that whole process is orienting our lives toward Christ. It's not in trying to block out our sin, although that is important. It is in, in orienting toward Christ because as we run toward Christ, guess what happens? Everything behind us starts to fade back. We can minimize the role of orienting our lives toward Christ. As we do that, that means opening the word, knowing the word, being in the word so that God can use it in our lives when temptation and sin come to play. Spending time in prayer, do not minimize the effect and power of seeking the Lord in prayer day in and day out. It is one of the greatest ways to orient our life toward the Lord. It's the way that we spend before the Lord saying, I need you to orient my life towards you and opening with other believers. We need other believers who know our stories and know our pitfalls so that they can point us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ to orient us toward Christ. They can't do it for us, but they can sure sound the warning signs and the bells and the alarms and point us in the direction of running toward Christ. I'm not talking about getting up here and everybody admitting all their brokenness. Talking about one or two people or three or four people that you trust that can walk with you. As we orient our lives to Christ, we begin to move as people who have our lives open, no sealed off compartments, experiencing the fullness of the new life in Christ we were called to experience.